Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 16, 2018. I'm Brian Carta. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. Today we'll hear opposing viewpoints on a First Amendment case soon to be reheard on Bank by the Ninth Circuit. It involves a San Francisco ordinance requiring advertisements of sugar-sweetened beverages like sodas to warn consumers, with a label occupying 20% of an advertisement's face, that drinking those products contributes to obesity, diabetes, and tooth decay. In September, a panel comprising Judges Ikuda, Nelson, and Visiting Judge Michael Seabright applied the more deferential commercial speech framework to the ordinance, but nonetheless concluded it failed constitutional muster because the compelled warning was not as the doctrine requires, purely factual and uncontroversial, and also because the label's size was unduly burdensome to advertisers. But in January, the circuit voted to rehear the case on Bach. Measures like this one, though still fairly novel, have been the center of several circuit appeals in recent years, and at least one petition for certiorari with the Supreme Court. So it's an area of law certainly in some ferment. Our guests are three amici engaged in the appeal, two of them, Ben Winnig from Change Lab Solutions and Ted Berman of Public Good Law, argue that the ordinance is a reasonable governmental response to what they say is a public health crisis, rising rates of obesity and diabetes. Conversely, Bob Corn revere of Davis Wright Tremaine contends the measure is an overly paternalistic and unconstitutional conscription of private speech, one moreover based on misguided policy and inconclusive science. Before hearing from our guests, though, let's get to our opening brief. In another First Amendment matter, a Ninth Circuit panel held Tuesday in favor of challengers to a buffer zone enacted by the Department of Homeland Security to prevent challengers from protesting within 150 feet of a Border Patrol checkpoint in southern Arizona. The challengers themselves were often subjects of the checkpoint, which was set up on a public rural road near their homes and began protesting it until an impromptu and then a more official buffer zone was created. The challengers claimed the 150-foot barrier was selectively enforced and did not include demonstrators favorable to the checkpoint. A district court granted summary judgment to DHS, but in a unanimous opinion. Judge Milan Smith wrote that when the government re-designates what had been a public forum to a non-public space where free speech can be more readily curtailed, the government bears a burden of justifying that change, something the district court will now look into on remand. In a case involving prostitution and how the operation of sex for hire enterprises fits within California's penal code section on human trafficking, the 4th District affirmed Wednesday a 14-year sentence imposed on a defendant who recruited and introduced a young mother into the illicit trade while putting her up at a local hotel, keeping most of her revenues and threatening her against letting her daily quota slip below a certain high threshold. The defendant's argument on appeal was that the woman was physically free to leave the hotel and the trade altogether whenever she wanted, and so he could not be found guilty of the human trafficking statute's element requiring a defendant to have deprived another of personal liberty. But a unanimous and unsympathetic panel held that, among other things, the defendant's threats and efforts to keep the woman financially dependent effectively deprived her of her liberty and satisfied the trafficking statute. And uh, another Fourth Circuit panel reversed a lower court and held that HSBC card services, violated California's Invasion of Privacy Act of 1967 when its automatic recording system captured personal phone conversations between HSBC employees and family members they called during work breaks. HSBC had expressly authorized employees to make such calls, but those receiving the calls were not aware they were being recorded. When one of them sued, the lower court found HSBC hadn't intentionally recorded the calls to the plaintiff since the recording system was automatically triggered for all the company's outgoing calls. But in reversing, the panel reasoned that HSBC's awareness of the recording system 
was enough to substantiate its intent that the specific cause at issue be recorded. In June of 2015, San Francisco passed an ordinance requiring advertisers of sugar-sweetened beverages to place on their advertisements a warning that drinking such beverages, quote, contributes to obesity, diabetes, and tooth decay. The measure aimed to curb rising rates of those maladies, but was deemed in violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution by a three-judge Ninth Circuit panel in September. Here now are two gentlemen to present arguments in support of the ordinance's constitutional and public policy soundness. We're joined by Ben Winnig, the Vice President of Law and Policy at Change Lab Solutions. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, and thanks for uh, having me. We also are joined by Ted Merman. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Public Good Law Center and also a lecturer at Berkeley Law School. Uh, Ted, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here. We'll dive into this case here uh, in just a minute or two, um, but I'd like to get a sense of how you guys come at it. I understand from from chatting with you guys um, off air that you, you come to um, this case and, and sort of this policy goal from different places. Um, so maybe, Ben, could you start uh, and tell me a bit about how you sort of got into being an am- amicus in this case and sort of what just generally Change Lab does? Sure, Brian. Uh, so, as you noted, I serve as the Vice President of Law and Policy at a national nonprofit called Change Lab Solutions. Uh, our organization is based in Oakland, California, but we do work across the country. And we use the tools of law and policy to improve community health outcomes and advance health equity across the country. Uh, one of the things that's a bit unique about our organization is that it's com- composed of an interdisciplinary team of lawyers and urban planners and housing specialists, uh, policy analysts, public health professionals. Um, and one of my jobs as uh, the vice president of law and policy is to oversee our efforts to support jurisdictions with amicus briefs. Mm-hmm. Um, this particular ordinance, we didn't have anything specifically to do to the ordinance itself. So uh, as I mentioned, we do uh, a, a whole range of work across the country. One of the areas in which we specialize in is researching, drafting, model laws and policies. And so with regards to what the San Francisco ordinance, that's exactly the role that we played here in several years ago. Now, 2014, uh, my colleague Ian McLaughlin and sub- subsequently um, Sabrina Adler led an effort to develop model legislation for states that wanted to implement a policy requiring a safety warning on sugary drink containers and packaging. So that model, like all of our materials that we produce, is on our website. It continues to be on our website, and it's free for anyone to review and download. Uh, after we developed that model, Senator Monning, who's a state representative from Carmel, introduced legislation that was based on our model in the state house. And so that, I think at the time, passed the state senate. It has never been um, passed by the assembly. Uh, he's introduced it, I think, two or three times now. Um, a year after uh, that effort in 2014, then San Francisco supervisor Scott Weiner, who's now a state senator, proposed the ordinance that is subject of the, the matter at hand. And that ordinance uh, was also based on our model, but San Francisco adapted it to apply to advertisements within the city, not containers and packaging. So again, we didn't have anything specifically to do with any specific legislation, but the, both the state legislation and the San Francisco ordinance were uh, based or adapted from the model that we created. 
Okay, and uh, Ted, could you tell me a bit, I guess, about the Public Good Law Center and how you uh, got, got involved in this case as well? Sure. Uh, the Public Good Law Center is is dedicated to uh, defending legislation, public health and consumer legislation in particular, passed by uh, local governments, state governments, and uh, recently, not not too recently, but in the past, the federal government, uh, that faces industry challenge on constitutional grounds. Uh, so that uh, we have a particular specialty in coming in when uh, a, a lawsuit has been filed and supporting uh, the uh, the law, supporting those who uh, have uh, worked hard to get the law in place. And so we often work with uh, Change Lab Solutions to uh, defend this kind of effort in uh, in tandem and uh, in amicus briefs in particular. Uh, that's uh, a way that we have found to be an effective one in uh, communicating with with courts and in uh, providing support to uh, to local governments in this case uh, San Francisco uh, is the first jurisdiction in the country to have passed this type of ordinance and uh, you know the constitutional questions were on the table and uh, we were certain <laughs> as uh, would borne out that industry would be making uh, a uh, strongly argued case uh, against the constitutionality of this uh, measure, and we thought that there was an even stronger case for its constitutionality and that needed to be put before the court. Okay, and then the, the first court, obviously, to, to hear that constitutional challenge here was the district court in the northern district up there. Um, it, it cited um, with you guys, it upheld the ordinance uh, against First Amendment challenges. Uh, briefly, Ted, could you describe um, the district ruling there? I understand it, it did uphold the ordinance, but I think it, it granted a, an injunction while the an appeal would be pending. Is that right? Yes. Uh, the Judge Chen, uh, known for being a, a very good listener, known for uh, weighing arguments from all sides very carefully, um, looked very carefully at the uh, the First Amendment, uh, the underlying First Amendment law, both in the Ninth Circuit and nationally, and uh, you know looked at the nature of this particular challenge uh, and uh, recognized that some questions were either close questions or questions where uh, you know no court had ruled before, uh, but uh, in the end said uh, you know we we think that this is this does not uh, unduly impinge on the, the rights of uh, advertisers. Uh, there's obviously a very important uh, message to be communicated to the public. And uh, he actually he said that there was one issue uh, which uh, was a close call for him, and that was the size of the ordinance. That it took up 20% of uh, all advertisements for sugar-sweetened beverages. Uh, and uh, he said, but nonetheless, he thought that that was analogous uh, to the 20% requirement for, for example, tobacco advertisements. And uh, he, I think, uh, recognized as well that you know, when you talk about the Constitution, uh, you're talking about something that can't easily or, or feasibly be changed. Uh, ordinarily, if there are going to be questions about whether something is just the right size or whether 
the language of something is is uh, appropriate, that's really a question for the political process. And I think that the beverage industry has shown itself fully capable of taking advantage of the political process, and that that's really where this uh, belongs. Uh, so uh, Judge Chen upheld the ordinance, but recognizing that there was a close call on the size uh, and that some of uh, the law that he was deciding was the law that, that he thought the Ninth Circuit uh, could clarify, he granted an injunction pending review by the Ninth Circuit. So I suppose maybe a, a good place to to start talking about the the different arguments on either side of the the various points brought up with this case is is with the the opinion that gets rendered then by a three judge panel in in the Ninth Circuit hearing hearing the appeal they felt a bit differently than Judge Chen as to the constitutionality of this ordinance. Um, there's a there's a majority here and a concurrence. It's not exactly a split panel. They largely agree, but um, on, on I think at least one or two points, there's a important difference we'll get to. Um, between the majority and the concurrence, but to to begin as the the opinion does, the majority lays out you know the two relevant f- uh, frameworks when you're talking about regulation of commercial speech. Of course, um, the ones pretty familiar to folks: the Central Hudson Test and the uh, I, I confess I'm, I'm never totally sure how to pronounce this. The the Zouderer test, the Zouderer test. Uh, you could correct me. Uh, That's a good one. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. Um, if you could, could we just lay out? I guess those those two tests, what uh, and what what they entail, and and when those different tests apply, Ted. Sure. Uh, so just to back up a little bit, uh, you know, it's a general matter of First Amendment law, um, outside the context of commercial speech or advertising, which is what we're talking about here. Uh, there, it's the government can no more compel you to say something than it can tell you not to say something, and uh, absent some. Uh, particular uh, circumstances, uh, a court would apply strict scrutiny. Um, but within the context of commercial speech, uh, there a, a lesser level of protection is provided. Uh, for restrictions on commercial speech, that uh, level of protection is um, contained within the, the so-called central Hudson test. It's got four prongs. Um, the first is a threshold prong asking if the speech is basically protected at all. Uh, it's not if it's false or, or inherently misleading or, uh, about an illegal subject. Um, if it is none of those things, then, uh, you apply the next three prongs, uh, asking whether there's a substantial government interest, whether that interest is directly and materially advanced by, uh, the, measuring question, and then uh, fourth prong, whether there's a, a reasonable fit between what the uh, government is intending to do and what it actually did. Um, that's all designed for restrictions on speech, uh, and it ha- originally was uh, denominated a form of intermediate scrutiny. It's probably a little tougher <laughs> than that now in practice. Um, but uh, as a general matter, it's, it's certainly a lesser level of protection. And then that was 1980. And then 1985, the court got a, a case involving uh, plaintiff's lawyer uh, advertising to uh, potential clients his services. And um, the uh, Bar Association had uh, required that a certain disclaimer be made by a plaintiff's lawyer uh, that would 
communicate to potential clients that even though you may not have to pay attorney's fees up front, uh, you were responsible for costs. And uh, well, you know, the lawyer objected to that. The court upheld that part of the, the Bar Association's requirements, uh, saying that a disclosure uh, is actually uh, in the nature of, uh, of uh, what the First Amendment supports and, uh, and why the First Amendment is there in the first place. It provides more information, not less. And therefore, scrutiny of required disclosure should be uh, more lenient than it is of restrictions on speech, at, you know, in the commercial context in particular. I think, too, that the court was cognizant of the fact that there were warnings <laughs> out there. People were used to uh, being warned about things. People were used to disclosures. And uh, frankly, uh, I think that uh, disclosures, uh, attorneys representing corporate defendants uh, tend to favor uh, disclosures as opposed to restrictions on speech as uh, in, in agreeing to in settlements involving injunctive relief, for example. Uh, so the court in the Zouderer case applied uh, a standard akin to uh, rational basis uh, to disclosures in that case. Uh, in that case, the disclosures were factual uh, and uncontroversial, and so the court using that as an example, uh, said that if, you know, certainly if the disclosure required is factual and uncontroversial, then this lenient level of, uh, of review should apply. Um, the question is, well, what if it's not factual and uncontroversial? <laughs> is implicit in the Zouder case. It's what not, wasn't entertained there. And it, it, although this hasn't ever been decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, what you know? What should the alternative be? Uh, just by analogy with other types of First Amendment law, since the test for restrictions on speech, uh, as a general matter, of com on commercial speech, is the intermediate scrutiny of uh, of Central Hudson, then the Central Hudson test would presumably apply to uh, non-factual and non and and maybe controversial uh, or opinion-focused uh, requirements. So that's why uh, Central Hudson is there as the alternative to Zouderer, um, but uh, it is a somewhat awkward fit. Uh, there are pieces of the test, uh, you know, what, what does it mean for uh, a disclosure to directly and materially advance a government interest? And more to the point, I suppose, you know, how can you know, a disclosure be, uh, be tailored or, uh, uh, you know, a reasonable fit with the, um, the goals of the government. It often makes for uh, somewhat more abstract <laughs> um, analysis, but that is the standard and the alternative standard that most courts have agreed on. Before sort of getting into how the, the court applied the, the Zouderer test, um, I just wanted to flag one more thing uh, about that case and something that the majority points out in passing. Um, the majority mentions that it's not clear. Supreme Court precedent hasn't made made clear whether or not that that Zouderer test has is endorsed beyond the contexts where ads are potentially misleading. You mentioned that uh, attorney advertisement making it seem that representation on a contingent basis was was free if it you know you didn't didn't prevail, uh, and so there was some potential 
misconceptions sent to consumers in that in that context. Um, and here, the advertisements that would bear the warning aren't. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really arguing they're misleading. They're by just showing some folks drinking a drinking a soda. Um, and so I think the majority points out that where you don't have a potentially misleading uh, advertisement, we're not sure the Zouderer test applies, but they, they go ahead and apply it anyways. But could you just uh, unpack that a bit for me, Ted, if you would? Well, sure. Uh, there are two principal cases in the United States Supreme Court, the Zouderer case and then the Milovets case, which uh, followed it a little, a little less than a decade ago. Um, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has never faced a case where a, uh, you know, a, a uh, warning, a disclosure was required in a context where principal concern was avoiding consumer confusion or deception. Um, but um, one, every other, every circuit now that has uh, addressed it, and there are a lot of them, uh, has decided that in fact it uh, should apply outside that context. The D.C. Circuit briefly uh, held otherwise. That was overruled on bank uh, in the American Meat Institute case uh, a few years back, and that restored unanimity to the circuits. And it makes sense. Uh, you want to have uh, the ability to say, keep out of reach of children on, <laughs> on, on a plastic bag, uh, or this is not a toy. Uh, you want to say, uh, you know, similarly, that no, not, not for use by children under three years old. Uh, there's no deception involved there, uh, but it's the kind of warning that I think people come to expect uh, a government agency to be able to uh, place on certain items. And I think, frankly, that we live in a, a much safer society <laughs> than many in this world uh, because we uh, have that kind of ability and the government has that kind of ability uh, and, and exercises that kind of ability uh, to let people know. And I'd say that that's quite consonant with the purpose and, and ideas of the First Amendment. It provides people with information so that they can make choices uh, that, uh, you know, about their own health and safety. Okay, we'll get into to why the, the majority thinks this ordinance fails the, the Zouderer test. Ben, ben, let me ask you, um, the one qualm the majority has is that unlike compelled speech that Zouderer would approve of that has to be factual and uncontroversial, the majority feels that these warning labels are not uncontroversial. Um, what What is the reasoning on that point? I, I assume um, your group does a lot of work um, doing the, the research that goes into creating sort of model labels like this. Uh, so I imagine you, you, you d disagree on this um, controversy point, but tell me a bit about why um, the majority feels it's, it's not uncontroversial in, um, in, in this case. That's a good question. I, uh, I, I'll, say, I'll say a few things. I want to reiterate a, a, a couple pieces uh, from Ted's brilliant analysis. I should have had him as a law professor in common. <laughs> I would have done much better. Um, so, you know, as Ted, as Ted mentioned, and just to clarify here, among one of the reasons the court might apply a more lenient standard is that whatever this disclosure is, is indeed factual and uncontroversial. And so, you know, measures that foster rather than impede the flow of useful information, so long as they're factual and controversial, are, are subject to this deferential First Amendment review. Um, so is, is it true is the question we're really trying to ask. And, you know, we haven't even uh, mentioned 
yet what the um, what the warning says. So I want to quote that. Drinking beverages with added sugars contributes to obesity, diabetes, and tooth decay. That's what we're talking about. Is that a factual statement? Um, well, of course, we believe it is, and it's not just us, and it's not just Ted and, and his organization, but ample studies over time have shown that sugary drinks, drinking sugary beverages, contribute to these three health ills. Um, and it's not only just the peer-reviewed studies, but it's also organizations like the ones who signed on to our brief, the American Heart Association, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics here in California, the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors, uh, the National Association of County and City Health Officials, California Medical Society, San Francisco Marin Medical Society, and the list goes on. So we have all these um, state and national and even, you know, WHO, international organizations. Um, they didn't sign our brief, but they've certainly um, aligned with the science. Uh, but the ones who signed our brief have put their names out there because they know that the simple truth is drinking these beverages um, contributes to obesity, diabetes, and tooth decay. Um, now, with regards to the controversy, um, certainly the industry, uh, as expected, put um, reference studies in their brief um, that would perhaps suggest the opposite. Uh, I think the point I want to make about that is um, there was an analysis done a while back, I forget the year, that looked at the results of uh, scientific experiments designed to evaluate the effects of sugary drinks on diabetes and other um, obesity-related health outcomes. And it found that studies with no financial ties to the beverage industry, so studies with no ties, were over 30 times more likely to find causal associations between sugary drink consumption and poor health outcomes when compared to those studies with industry ties. So um, I think there's it's pretty clear what which studies are controlling in this matter. The court, uh, nonetheless, um, was able to identify through industry briefs that, yes, yeah, some studies uh, out there might suggest otherwise. Um, but I think the point I'm trying to make is um, most scientists, and in fact I would say most public health and medical institutions, would, would disagree with that. I guess I'm not altogether sure exactly where this next piece of the majority's opinion fits into the Zouder test, but they make the point that these warning labels will you know, be required on the advertisements for sugar-added beverages like Coca-Cola and the like, um, but not on other beverages that, that do include sugar, like, say, you know, orange juice or something, um, or on any variety of other drinks or, or foods that might very well contribute to obesity and, and diabetes. And the majority seems to sort of make some point that it's not it's not fair that this you know type of product is is singled out. You know, Ben, you you guys do a lot of work conceiving these sorts of um, policies that create labels like this. Is this something that you guys have you know encountered before that governments or maybe courts will think it's it's unfair to to sort of go after this one particular type? Why why do you did, did you pick this model ordinance to target? Uh, sugar-added beverages and not, I suppose, other things. And, and more generally, maybe, Ted, you can weigh on, on this one, too. Um, you know, how, how does that fit into the, the First Amendment doctrine? Is there some particular unfairness inquiry when you're targeting one group and not not others that might do the same sort of thing? Ben, I'll start, start with you. So I'll let Ted handle the kind of incrementalism approach and what, um, you know, governments are, are allowed to do under the First Amendment. But I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, uh, uh-huh. I like, I like to rely on what I call the kids can choke on things other than toys argument, 
which is yes, we have warnings on uh, toys, uh, alerting children that those who are under three should not play with this toy because of choking. But we do not have warnings on food that children choke on, which happens in my household all the time. We do not have warning on uh, everything that a kid could choke on. And so, uh, yes, it's true. Uh, we did specifically single out sugary drinks. Um, there is a reason for that. Um, is it true that other consumables uh, contribute to obesity, diabetes, and tooth decay? Absolutely. Does the First Amendment require that we label everything that may cause us harm? Absolutely not. Um, do sugary beverages pose a unique health threat to adults and kids? Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't take um, this issue lightly. We, uh, you know, in this context of the first, in this context, the First Amendment is about providing information to people to get information, I think, as Ted mentioned, into the hands of consumers so they can make better and, and more informed decisions. Um, we, right now, are in the middle of a truly severe and crushing epidemic. And uh, if I may, I just want to cite a few statistics to, to, so folks know what we're dealing with here. More than, that, more than one third of adults in the U.S. are obese. Another third are overweight. Uh, rates of obesity among children and youth have more than tripled in the last 30 years. Uh, among children, almost a third are either overweight and obese. In San Francisco, nearly half of San Francisco adults are overweight and obese. And um, as, of a few, as of a few years ago, 15% of low-income preschool kids and 19% of youth in the city were obese. Today in America, it's estimated that we have a 2 in 5 chance of developing diabetes in our lifetime. If we're black or Hispanic, the odds are 1 in 2. So why sugary drinks? Well, drinking just one or two sodas per day can increase our risk of developing type 2 diabetes by about 26%. About one in three U.S. adults has prediabetes. 40% of kids are predicted to develop diabetes in our lifetime. So that's the context within which we thought about this ordinance. Now, what about sugar? Well, the average American now consumes about 39 pounds of sugar each year just from soda and sugary beverages. Consumption of sugary drinks has increased by 500% in the past 50 years. It's now the single largest category of caloric intake by kids, and it almost 20 years ago uh, surpassed milk uh, in that category. Uh, what about the money? How much does this cost us? Well, we spend approximately $190 billion, that's billion with a B, on obesity-related conditions. That's over 20% of all of our health care costs. So this is this is real stuff. And, and one of the statistics that's in our brief uh, which I think is telling, is that uh, in 2012, or as of 2012, I should say, the number of U.S. military personnel who had to undergo amputations as a result of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan was uh, 1,572. The number of Americans with diabetes who had to go amputations in just the year of 2006 was 65,700. So that's, that's what's at stake here. And the First Amendment, again, exists to inform and educate people so they can make these choices. That is all that the law requires. Um, no one here is trying to ban soda. There's no argument that the soda industry should go away. The idea of the model was simply to get information to consumers so that they can make the decisions that they want to make, that they could make to, for their families and their kids. Um, in terms of... Uh, the how the First Amendment framework fits into that, I'll, I'll, I'll 
hand that over to Ted. He'll do a good job of explaining that. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. I think that it's important to keep in mind exactly what Ben just emphasized, which is that the government is engaged in trying to do something about a national and local health crisis. There is a, it is not an exaggeration to say that there is an epidemic of obesity, an epidemic of diabetes uh, that is uh, victimizing ourselves and our children. Uh, and things look worse for our children even than they do for ourselves. Uh, for the government not to do something in that situation would be a severe problem. And uh, when it takes the least constitutionally objectionable uh, route and provides additional information uh, rather than, you know, uh, any number of other uh, routes it might have taken, uh, with respect to advertising, or frankly, uh, not a constitutionally ejectable route at all. But one thing that, that Ben mentioned, and you could ban these products. There's no constitutional objection there. Uh, but instead, the, you know, San Francisco said, look, uh, we're going to respect the autonomy of the, the folks who live in our city and county, and we're going to put this information up on, uh, on, on, uh, billboards, on outdoor advertisements. Uh, and in fact, the way that people actually in, relate to warnings, it's not as though they see them and, and, and contemplate them and, uh, you know, think logically through them every time they see them. It's there and there's repeated, uh, exposure. It's, I think the purpose of an, of a warning is to give someone something to think about. It, you know, it, it says, wait, <laughs> that there's a reason that this is on there. And, and let me think about what that is. Um, in the First Amendment, context and and that those very sensible principles are reflected uh, so that in the when the Zouderer test applies when this rational basis level of review applies uh, the government does not have to do everything all at once it can make uh, distinctions and it can start with certain products uh, and not others and that's absolutely clear uh, across the cases Zouderer itself uh, you know, only only applied to uh, certain types of uh, contingent representation uh, rather than other providers of allegedly free services. Um, the you know, cases involving country of origin labeling for meat in uh, that, which is federal law, um, uh, have been upheld in the D.C. Circuit, even though they don't have this, you know, the, the precisely the same. Um, requirements for other types of foods. Uh, same is true of, uh, of a case involving airline advertisements, but not other types of advertisements and that, that they had to disclose the total price. Uh, the same is true of, of warnings on cigarette packages. It didn't examine a lack of, of, of uh, similar warnings for uh, other types of tobacco product at the time. Uh, and, and the list goes on, in other words, uh, and, and frankly, if we required that every product that had, uh, a potential, uh, uh, had, you know, harm to it, uh, have a warning before any product could have a warning on it, then we would either have a regime in which everything bore a warning and no one paid attention to any of them, or 
there were no warnings at all. And I don't think that we want to be in either environment. And I think that the First Amendment very sensibly reflects that. Okay, maybe just one more thing to unpack real quickly from the majority's ruling is um, it's, it's feeling that the, the warning labels are also unduly burdensome on these advertisers in a way that would um, also, as a sort of separate and independent basis, make them fail the, the Zouderer test. Um, Ted, why why was that so? Is it just uh, the, the size of them? Ben, you mentioned that they were had to be 20% of a print or billboard advertisement. What was the, the reasoning on that point, uh, Ted? I, I think that they, uh, well, I mean, there's, there's, there's something that you mentioned earlier that I, I want to highlight, and that is where does the majority's reasoning fit into the Zouderer test? And the answer is nowhere. <laughs> uh, there is nowhere in, in the Zouderer test for the kinds of concerns, the sort of subjective impressions that, uh, that the majority found uh, problematic. Now, if you look at the concurrence, Judge Nelson's concurrence, she said, well, I have a problem with the size <laughs> of the warning. Uh, that is unduly burdensome. And, and uh, at least arguably, uh, uh, there is a component of the Zouderer test which, which uh, says that a, uh, a, a measure, a disclosure requirement, should not be unduly, uh, should not be unjustified or unduly burdensome. Uh, and uh, in that has been ex- explicated really uh, by, uh, you know, in, in the Supreme Court by a case called Ibanez, um in which uh, a, a CPA advertising uh, her services was forced to, to, compelled by state law to make a disclaimer um, that couldn't fit in the yellow pages ad or a business card. That is, there were, that given the particular medium, it wasn't even possible to, um, put the disclaimer on it. Uh, and that, so that this would entirely foreclose that possibility. So I, there's a good argument, <laughs> uh, to be made that, uh, 20% does not foreclose the, uh, possibility of advertising a sugar sweetened beverage. Soda company can go right ahead and 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 use the other eighty percent uh, of the space and get its message across. And it's going to do so effectively. These are skilled people, uh, and they know how to reach uh, audiences. It is also true that Americans are more used to smaller disclaimers. Other, you know, outside the context of tobacco and prescription drugs, I suppose, where uh, it's. It's uh, whether on television ads or otherwise, the disclaimers and warnings are, are more than 20%. But outside uh, a few uh, contexts like that, although those are health-related, as is this, um, other disclaimers tend to be smaller. So I think that uh, Judge Nelson was echoing Judge Chen and saying that this seemed unusually large. <laughs> um, Judge, I think they came down on, on opposite sides. Uh, Judge Chen said it seems unusually large, but it's an uh, unusually serious problem that we're facing. And I think that as a nation, we probably haven't faced it seriously enough. Uh, over time, I suspect that a 20% <laughs> uh, warning will not seem uh, particularly remarkable. But for now, it, you know, it, it certainly hasn't been there before. People aren't used to having warnings on their, uh, on their uh, beverage ads. Um, so, uh, Judge Nelson said, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, Pache 
Judge Chen, I am uh, nonetheless <laughs> uh, uh, convinced that this is uh, probably too big uh, and, that, and that it should be smaller. My preference uh, as, uh, you know, uh, a resident of the Bay Area uh, would be that, that this be something that the San Francisco Board of Supervisors take up and that if people think they're too big or that's a question for them more than for uh, a court. Uh, but if uh, a court finds, look, uh, that's actually crosses a constitutional line, well, then, you know, San Francisco can uh, take, take that information and, and rework things. Um, but I think that there you're really talking about sculpting it in, 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 and refining it to make sure that things are both constitutionally acceptable and still effective, uh, which is, of course, what we want from warnings. Uh, and I think that that, you know, working together uh, is something that we should keep in mind. Well, quick, we, we could just touch on the themes that you guys brought up in the, the amicus that you filed together f- supporting a rehearing on Bank. Um, one point you made is that the, the panel in, in, in the, the three-judge ruling injected subjecti- sub- subjectivity into that purely factual and uncontroversial analysis. Um, what, what exactly do you mean by they injected uh, subjectivity? Uh, Ted, I start with you. I think that what they said was, well, the warning that Ben read, <laughs> uh, you know, may be entirely accurate, but people might take it a different way. Uh, they may uh, they may think that the fact that there's a warning means that there should that other products with added sugar are not as dangerous, and so they'll that will be their reaction. Um, that sort of subjective uh, response is not one that finds any foothold in current First Amendment doctrine outside the panel's opinion. Um, the recently, for example, the Ninth Circuit and CTIA versus the City of Berkeley about cell phone warnings held just the opposite. <laughs> that, uh, that you look at the text of a warning, you look at whether the statements in the warning are factual or factually uncontroversial, and if they are, that's the end of the inquiry. Um, I suppose that there's a point at which, uh, you know, a, a, a warning could in fact be um, uh, terribly misleading taken uh, as a whole, and that would probably be unjustified. Um, but that's not the case here. I mean, here, as Ben explained, you've got three uh, uh, public health <laughs> crises uh, that uh, that are uh, tied directly to the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages, and there's no real denying that. Uh, and and that is information that people should have, so that they can make decisions about what they want to put in their body. Ben, let me ask you. On we've been talking sort of a, around this point of whether if they're come to be sort of warning labels on everything that such labels tend to lose their effectiveness. Is is there some sort of tipping point past which, you know, you, you put labels on everything, meaning, you know, folks will just tend to dismiss all of them because they have to live their life. They can't be constant, constantly alarmed. Um, you know, do you think that this label gets anywhere near that tipping point if there there is one? Um, and is, is there some good research as to just how effective labels like this are? Maybe, uh, you know, the most prominent one that comes to mind is on 
uh, tobacco advertisements and, and products? Um, yeah, so uh, a few points. One, uh, no, I don't think this particular warning gets us to gets us into anything close to there's warnings on everything and no one's going to listen or listen to them anymore. Um, there's been actually several studies on this particular type of warning uh, on sugary drinks. Um, that yet, no, they don't exist out there. Uh, but you know, scientists do what scientists do and make various models and um, virtual uh, buying experiments. And um, the warnings that have uh, been subject to these studies have shown that um, not only do they improve uh, kids and adults' recognition of, let's say, the sugar content of certain beverages, um, but they also have reduced the choices, hypothetical, admittedly, but the hypothetical choices to buy sugary sweetened beverages. And that, ha- that has been true for both studies that have uh, been done with um, adolescents and adults. Um, they also improve both um, adults, parents, and adolescents' understanding of the health harms associated with overconsumption of sugary drinks. And um, so not only do you have evidence of reduced purchasing, but evidence of um, increased understanding and education as well, both of which, uh, of course, as a um, public health policy organization, we support. Um, So that's the warning regime within which we're operating, that these um, we hope and believe, based on these studies, will be successful. I think that's why you're seeing such a strong push from industry to get them invalidated, um, because they actually might have the intended effect. With regards to you know tobacco um, and alcohol, which are uh, I think two of the substances that have done had the most study of labels. My understanding of the of the research on that is. Um, you know, depending on the type of warning, where it is and who buys it, they are more or less effective. But um, in general, studies have shown that those types of warnings are helpful uh, at a minimum uh, with education and, and at a maximum of actually reducing uh, reducing purchasing. Following up on that quickly, Ben, I assume that there was a time where folks would also have argued that it would be overly paternalistic and um, you know, an unfair use of compelled speech to to compel tobacco and alcohol companies to to place warnings on their advertisements and products. Do you, do you have a sense that perhaps we're just at a point maybe that compares to that same point that came before labeling of those products was, was commonplace and maybe 10, 15 years from now we'll look back and say, well, obviously it was fine to label sugary drinks. Um, do you think this is, has the same sort of arc that that, that fight I do, uh, and I'll tell you why, is because I've, you know, like like people say on TV, I'm not a scientist, I just played on TV, so I'm not a scientist, but I have read the studies, and they're quite clear, and the organizations that we rely on, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the, the World Health Organization, uh, and others, as I mentioned, who had signed our brief, like the American Heart Association, they have, they've all signed on to this science, so to speak. Um, you know, with regards to the paternalism aspect of it, um, you know, is government the best entity to tell us what we should eat, tell us, uh, uh, you know, about our diets? And, and I'll just say this with regards to where the science is. Um, of course, all science has the potential to be uh, updated or even changed by new knowledge. Um, if we had to have 
uh, perfect science for a period of 100 years before we did anything, then we would never do anything. It would effectively preclude the government from taking any action whatsoever on anything. Mercury, lead, name, name your issue. So again, from, from our standpoint, the government's job here is to provide people the best available science at the time so that they can then make the best decisions for their health. And, and with regards to, um, you said, you know, are we going to be, what's going to be here in 10 or 15 years? Um, what I'm reading into that question is, um, well, what, might the science change? So that's, that's why I'm answering that. Sure. I also want to note that the science, uh, and scientists, uh, have, have been concerned about the links between sugar and weight gain and obesity and tooth decay for, this isn't a new thing. This has been a very long time when scientists have, have expressed this concern. And I should add that so has the sugar industry. Uh, you know, those papers that were released a year or two ago, we learned that the International Trade Association documents actually showed that the sugar industry was aware of these potential links between sugar and chronic disease more than a half century ago. More than 50 years ago, the sugar industry was aware of these things. Of course, the industry didn't um, confirm those uh, those links publicly, and they, they still don't want to do so, but we've seen the evidence in popular press. The other thing I want to I want to mention about the um, kind of paternalistic nature of, of your question is that, you know, soda is marketed as some type of, I guess what I would call habitual refreshment. It's not marketed like a special treat, like an ice cream cone that you might have after dinner on the weekend. Um, so it's treated very differently. The, the, the numbers that we have marketing data for, going back a few years to 2013, um, beverage companies spend $866 million to advertise sugary drinks. Um, that's a lot of heft. Uh, African-American youth in that year saw more than twice as many television ads for sugary drinks and energy drinks than did their uh, white counterparts. Um, exposure to sugar drink advertisements for um, Latino uh, preschoolers and kids between the years t 2010 and 2013 rose by 23% for children and 32% for preschoolers. Um, and so, you know, I would argue, we would argue that these labels can do something to help counteract some of these, uh, what I would call predatory marketing efforts, Shell to sell sugary drinks to children, uh, particularly children of color. Uh, you know, it's no coincidence that those groups who are exposed to more advertising also bear the brunt of diet-related chronic disease. And so uh, if we can do one thing to uh, help inform those adolescents or the parents of those children, uh, this seems to be a very, very, very reasonable approach to doing so. Um, otherwise, we don't really have a chance to... Um, Take a stand against that kind of, of marketing muscle. Um, it, you know, and, and in terms of Californians, I, I also want to mention a poll that was done a few years ago. I think it was 2014, where uh, the, the poll, the, the result of that poll was that 74% of Californians actually supported and wanted beverage companies to have warnings on sodas and other sugary drinks. So people want this. Um, Three-quarters of Californians actually want a little help from the government here so that they can counteract some of the, some of the messaging. And I think that's what, uh, you know, when we, we, when we get into the weeds of, of the First Amendment, which is very important to do, we need to understand that. But let's not lose sight that that's what we actually expect our elected officials to do that for us. Um, 
And fortunately, the First Amendment allows them to do it, as Ted has so eloquently explained. And so um, that's, that's, I think, how I'll answer, I'll answer your question. There, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of weight on one side here on the industry, and and it's perfectly acceptable uh, for the government to require these warnings to help educate and inform folks. Okay, yeah, just la- last word, Ted. Did you have any thoughts on a counterargument to that overly paternalistic point? That seems to be the really the overarching um, theme of the opposing briefs here. I, I just say this: what is required here by San Francisco is that additional information be provided to consumers. And uh, the First Amendment is not about reducing the amount of information that's provided. It's about increasing it. It is the least paternalistic way of going about things to uh, tell folks, you know, this is something that you might want to think about. it's not banning the product. It's not restricting the advertising. It's just saying this is a component of what you might want to keep in mind. And as a result, I think San Francisco is on solid ground, uh, and I think they are likely to prevail uh, when the en banc uh, Ninth Circuit hears their case. Okay. We'll, we'll find out soon enough, but we can go ahead and leave it there for now. Uh, thank you both so much for being on Thanks, the podcast. Brian. Ben Winnig of Change Lab Solutions, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. And thanks, Ted, very much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. We turn now to an opposing view, that of Bob Korn Revere, about a amicus brief on behalf of the Association of National Advertisers. He believes San Francisco's measure is unconstitutional, bad policy, and moreover, that it and other emerging laws like it should be subject to stricter scrutiny than was applied by the appellate panel. Last year, Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Okay, so maybe to start before we dive into your, your legal and, and your policy arguments against this this ordinance, um, what, what's sort of the focus of your, your practice? I, I know from reading your firm bio that you, you've been involved in just a, a lot of different uh, prominent First Amendment jurisprudence over the last many years. Um, what, what tends to be the focus? What, what areas of First Amendment law do you, you think sort of merit the most um, attention and, and that you tend to work on? Well, um, I have a broadly based First Amendment practice that is not necessarily focused on any one particular area. Uh, I think it's interesting that the First Amendment is in the life of the law as a broad matter is a very narrow specialty. And yet, when you get into First Amendment law, you find there are many different branches and it it's a very wide universe once you're in there. So there are people who do primarily media defense and, and defamation cases and news gathering cases. There are people who do uh, defense of adult materials. There are people who do commercial speech cases, people who do political speech cases. Uh, my practice has ranged from representing Playboy to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to um, working with uh, commercial speakers, and in this case, the Association of National Advertisers, to make sure that the commercial speech doctrine maintains strong First Amendment protections for commercial speech. Sure, yeah, so as you say, uh, in that universe of, of First Amendment law, we're in the, the commercial speech galaxy here. I'm uh, getting to, to the, the question at hand, maybe uh, as to sort of the broad framing of your brief, you know, we've just heard from from Ted and, and Ben about why they think the ordinance is 
you know, a, a fairly reasonable way for the government to address a public health concern. Um, it, it sounds like from your brief, you find this to be a pretty uh, overly paternalistic way for the government to approach this problem and as we'll get more into an unconstitutional one maybe could you just elaborate on the the paternalism point you know warning labels aren't too terribly uncommon in in society today on things like cigarettes and coffee cups and 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 movies you know why why does this one in your mind really kind of go beyond uh, the pale well there are a couple of issues there one is and you touched on this in your question um whether or not the government can require a message because it has a paternalistic message it wants to deliver and uh, that is an area that uh, the Supreme Court at least has roped off in the commercial speech doctrine saying you can't simply justify a regulation that intrudes on speech either by restricting it or by coercing it simply because you think you have a better idea of how people should live it's one thing if you're talking about known hazards if you're talking about uh, cigarettes or if you're talking about uh, a, a product that has toxic substances there the courts have said that uh, you can have a reasonable warning for those kinds of things but where it's a question of lifestyle choices where it's a question of when the government is simply trying to promote its own vision of what would make people healthier or happier uh, then uh, you run into uh, some fairly significant first amendment barriers if you're trying to either ban speech to promote that message or to promote speech to deliver that message we could jump into to the doctrine here um, there are two different frameworks that the courts might run speech regulations or compelled disclosures through in the commercial speech setting you know one the, the heightened scrutiny that the central hudson test uh gives or instead the, the, the more deferential Zouderer standard. Um, you write that the central Hudson test should apply here because the, the le- more deferential test, the Zouderer test, is reserved for commercial speech that that is or can be misleading. And uh, it seems like an interesting point to flag here and an important one that the Ninth Circuit panel I, I flagged this question and sort of wondered about it, whether that is the case, whether Zouder only applies when speech, commercial speech might be misleading. Um, but it, it did go ahead and apply the Zouder test, the more deferential one. What, what's the argument that instead Central Hudson uh, should apply here? And then I suppose, um, why does the ordinance fail it? Well, right. Let me um, just go back a bit on some of the uh, underlying premises of, of your question, because you're right. It does come down to a choice between a lessened scrutiny under the uh, Zauderer case from 1985 uh, or um, intermediate scrutiny under Central Hudson or in some cases even heightened scrutiny where you have the government trying to uh, pick and choose among um, preferential messages in the marketplace. It's useful to keep in mind that there was no commercial speech doctrine before the mid-1970s. Before that time, uh, commercial speech, purely commercial speech, was considered to be um, unprotected by the First Amendment and that it fell into one of those categories where the government could freely regulate it. In the 1970s, the court began taking another look at this area and concluded that, you know, people do have as much and in some cases more of an interest in the flow of commercial information than they do even the most intense political debate. And so the court began protecting commercial speech and developed what it called the commercial speech doctrine that has evolved over the past 40 years. As part of that, um, looking at how these different regulations manifest themselves in the marketplace, that 
general trend of the cases, both in the Supreme Court and in the lower courts, has been to extend increasing levels of protection for commercial speech. And in the mid-1980s, uh, the court uh, issued the decision in Zauderer versus Ohio Disciplinary Commission um, having to do with attorney advertising. In most cases, in that case, striking down the regulations, but in one aspect, upholding the ruling that said that the attorney had to disclose more information. This was an attorney ad that basically said, if I represent you and, I, and you don't win, uh, you pay no fee. Um, and the court felt that because most people would not understand that when you're on a contingency fee basis, you still have to pay costs, you know, the expenses involved in litigation, that that ought to be made known. So it held that in certain circumstances, you can require some kind of disclosure. And the question came down in that case, and it has extended into the cases that we're talking about, what are the circumstances in which you can have this sort of compelled disclosure? And is it given the same level of protection or the same level of scrutiny as other commercial speech cases? The Supreme Court justified that lower level of scrutiny for a compelled speech, not because there's a difference between banning speech and forcing speech. Uh, in basic First Amendment law, those two things are the same. Banning speech or prior restraint is every bit as repugnant to the First Amendment as compelling someone to say something. Uh, the question is, in the commercial context, is it treated differently? And the decision that the Supreme Court has made is that where you're curing deception, then the government does more latitude to require disclosure. Now, the reason that it gets a low level of screening is really quite simple, and that is Otherwise, the government would have the power to ban the speech entirely because there's no First Amendment protection for false commercial speech, for misleading commercial speech. And so having a disclosure isn't the disclosure is less of an infringement on the First Amendment that you get lower scrutiny. It's because imposing a less restrictive alternative of clearing up the speech rather than banning is less of an intrusion. And that's the reason why this area of doctrine has been limited to those instances in which the government's interest is to cure deception rather than simply to say, we'd like the commercial speaker to say something else. Now, there are two things of the San Francisco ordinance that make this, I think, somewhat more unique. Uh, one is the fact that it isn't an ordinance designed to prevent anyone from being deceived. And so for that reason, it's simply the city deciding that people ought to know more about nutrition um, for this particular class of products uh, before they made a decision to consume it. Um, and because there's no interest in curing deception, then that justification for a lower level of scrutiny of um, it is a less restrictive alternative than a ban simply doesn't apply here. The second issue that makes this unique is that this isn't a situation where you're informing someone about the product per se. It's not like you're having someone do a listing of the calories or the ingredients. This is the government trying to promote its own vision of what would make people healthier or happier. Now, there's nothing in the world that prevents the city and county from San Francisco from delivering whatever message it wants to deliver to its citizens. It can give nutrition advice. It can do whatever else. The question in this case is whether or not they can conscript the advertiser or the person who's providing the product to deliver their message. 
the three-judge panel that, that did decide this originally, nonetheless, went ahead and decided it by applying that, that more deferential Zouderer framework. You say that even if that were to happen again, when the en banc panel hears the case, that, that this um, ordinance would still fail that, that more deferential test. As the panel pointed out, uh, compelled disclosure has to be sort of purely factual and uncontroversial, I think is the doctrinal That's phrase right. there. Um, so why, in your case, is a warning on advertisements that sugar-sweetened beverages uh, contribute to you know, these health problems, why is that not purely factual or uncontroversial? Or and controversial. Sure, and I, I think the the court did a good job of explaining that. Um, and and just by way of background, the fact that a, a particular ordinance is subject to a lower level of scrutiny under the First Amendment doesn't necessarily mean that that regulation will survive. And this is a good example of that, where even under this more deferential level of review, uh, the panel at least uh, decided that the San Francisco ordinance went too far. As you've mentioned, the three requirements uh, that were established by the Supreme Court in Zotterer are that any sort of compelled disclosure has to be purely factual, non-controversial, and non-burdensome. And all three of those conditions need to be met. In this case, the panel uh, thought that the required um, disclosure in the ordinance did not meet uh, any of those um, those elements. First of all, that it wasn't uh, purely factual. Part of that is because the uh, disclosure, just talking about the impact of certain sugar-sweetened beverages, created the implication, and I think the false implication, that other beverages uh, don't have those same qualities, that other beverages might not lead to uh, overweight and obesity and uh, diabetes and other kinds of health conditions. So, for example, if you were to drink an equivalent amount of pure orange juice as you do soda, you're going to have the same health effects. And uh, the same is true of many other things. And so it looks like you're targeting certain uh, products that are disfavored to deliver a message that by because of the lack of broader context becomes misleading. And for that reason, the court concluded it was not purely factual. The same is true about whether or not it would be considered to be controversial, where you are basically weighing in and giving the city's view of a particular health issue or a particular policy issue. Um, because of the, the context in which the uh, disclosure is made, and again, because it isn't complete, um, then it does become controversial. And in this case, um, because it was also considered to be excessively burdensome, because taking up 20% of a billboard space or an ad uh, is uh, really significant, particularly when you um, think about the fact that under the rationale that the city was using, there's no reason why they couldn't then say, well, we want you to put up a second um, disclosure. We think that you should also reveal something about the carbonation process. And so you can imagine the 20% requirement becomes an even greater requirement over time. There, there are simply no limiting principles to the, uh, the requirement. But as far as the court was concerned, um, the 20% was even too burdensome. And it um, uh, put up mock-ups of what ads would look like in the appendix to its decision, showing just how much space that took up. One counterpoint I know if Ted and Ben were still on the line here, they might raise about the, the controversial or uncontroversial nation of the science here. You know, they uh, mentioned that 
quite a number of uh, scientific bodies have, have found this is a pretty clear link, uh, consumption of sugar and um, health risks like obesity and diabetes. Uh, and they contend that some of the, the science on the other side is backed by the industry that, that uh, has some interest in the outcome here. Um, what would be your response to, to that claim? Well, a couple of things about that. One is the science says it is overconsumption of these products that leads to the health effects that they're talking about, not just uh, uh, the fact that those products have the ingredients that they do. Uh, and again, uh, by implication, by not mentioning that the same health effects uh, relate to other products not covered by the, uh, the ordinance, um, the issue makes it both non-purely factual and controversial. Uh, the question isn't whether or not if you drank 20 sodas a day, whether or not that would be bad for you. No, no one questions that. That's not the science that is at issue here. Uh, the question is whether or not uh, they are disclosing that normal use of a product leads to these effects and whether or not uh, the um, implication because of the exclusion of other products also makes it the government's requirement misleading. And the principle that is at issue here would apply to any kind of disclosure that the government thinks is uh, useful or necessary. Uh, and all you have to do is look at some of the uh, guidelines that perhaps the federal government has uh, um, championed over the past couple of decades, whether it's uh, uh, disclosure relating to dietary cholesterol or uh, others, where um, it, one year you'll have a finding that uh, you shouldn't eat eggs, and the next year you'll have uh, science that says that it's not a problem. Uh, so basing constitutional decisions based on those kinds of factors can be uh, really a difficult thing to, to follow. And it also depends on what your level of, of threshold is, what, what, how much science is necessary to underlie um, this kind of requirement. There's a case currently going on for the city of Berkeley involving warnings for RF radiation for cell phones, where the city is requiring um, retailers of cell phones to disclose at the point of sale that uh, here are certain conditions about cell phones that can lead to RF, uh, that, that, that can lead to health effects. Uh, you should consult your information from your FCC required manual for the cell phone to determine its safety. Well, if you read those requirements, essentially the overall message to the consumer is to suggest that cell phones are dangerous, where the FCC's findings is that cell phones are safe. The way in which the disclosure is phrased creates a misleading impression, and yet that, that uh, um, disclosure was upheld as being factual simply because if you read each sentence of the dis required disclosure independently, each sentence by itself may be factual, but we need them together. The impression it creates is that cell phones are dangerous. The regulation itself was adopted because people testified before the city of Berkeley that they simply believed that cell phones might be bad for them, that it might give them brain cancer or that it might expect, uh, affect their sperm count. Uh, and that was enough. That, th that was the threshold for establishing sufficient, quote, science for the city to adopt this disclosure requirement.
just wanted to spin out real quickly the, the point that you've made a couple of times now that it, it is sort of unfair, or at least it, it seems to be the case that this ordinance singles out this particular type of consumable, these sugar-sweetened beverages, um, while not advising consumers that other types of beverages or foods that do contain sugar may lead to, to similar health um, you know, uh, effects. Um, I guess where doctrinally does that tuck in? It sounds like you think it, it, it fits into the Zouderer test of something being purely factual because, you know, sort of on its face, the Zouderer test doesn't say things need to be purely factual, uncontroversial, uh, unduly burdensome, and also, you know, compelled um, to be disclosed by everyone to whom, you know, it, it could potentially apply. Well, I mean, this is an issue that comes up when you accept as a government interest having uh, the the state decide your nutritional choices for you. When when you have the government deciding how people should live or how they should eat, then you begin to ask, well, shouldn't they warn us about everything? Shouldn't there be warnings about uh, eating pastrami or or uh, drinking sugar-sweetened beverages or whatever. Um, again, this is in a very different category from um, the example that people will use of, of you know, warnings about toxic uh, chemicals or warnings about uh, um, uh, cigarette smoking. This is merely uh, guiding people toward better nutrition. And if it's really just that, that the government wants to provide advice, there's nothing that prevents the government from putting up their own billboards or having public service announcements or anything else. The question is, at what point and at what level of scrutiny, scrutiny do you uh, apply when you are conscripting the commercial speaker to be the mouthpiece for that message? And that's where picking and choosing among different um, um, products becomes an issue where you decide you're going to warn people about sugar-sweetened beverages as opposed to, say, orange juice or, uh, you know, other kinds of, of, of drinks when the health effects may be identical. It's then that uh, having a disclosure about some and a warning about some and not about others becomes an issue. It's really only when the government gets into this um, business of trying to um, provide advice to people about how they should live. You, you flagged this point earlier as well, that it, it could be sort of, uh, I think you wrote in your brief, a folly to rely on the, the government or experts, um, specifically in the context of, of dietary health recommendations. It's certainly... Uh, I, I agree that it's been difficult to know over the past 10 or 20 years whether eggs are good for you or bad for you. That seems to kind of go back and forth because maybe science continues to evolve, I guess. But that, that does seem to be an argument that um, counsels against really being able ever to rely on science that could potentially change or warnings. Well, no, or and that's not, yeah, I mean, that's not the message at all. Uh, the message is I mean, people should stay up on what the current science is. People need to make choices about uh, what they're going to, what life choices they're going to make, what nutrition choices they're going to make, and all of that. The problem is once you put those into the form of a law or a regulation, they become calcified. Uh, and the exchange of information in the marketplace of ideas uh, gets put in concrete. Uh, and what you really need to do, or, you know, if you then say that uh, you can conscript advertisers to deliver that message, 
it's one thing to um, look at the next scientific journal article and, and see whether or not you're going to change your mind about a uh, given warning or health advice. It's another thing to look at science and then go change a regulation or change a law. It really is the problem of trying to force people to deliver certain messages uh, that creates the problem, not reliance on science. Wouldn't you say the same argument could sort of apply to the percentage of daily allotment uh, percentages shown on the nutritional labels of foods? Uh, folks are uh, required to have that on their on their products, even though the science on that could change. Well, it can change, but that, that's the point. If you're simply listing what the ingredients are in um, uh, you know, a product or you um, have your own government guidelines for what a daily allotment should be, that's, that's one thing. And uh, by the way, that is a, a clear example of something that is purely factual and, uh, and non-controversial. Um, and the question is not so much whether or not you should have that information out there. The question is how much of it can you force others to communicate for you and what is the level of scrutiny when you do so? One last one to, to wrap up. And when, when Ted and, and Ben were on, they, they, they tried to hammer home the point that this is a, a pretty serious public health um, crisis, as, as they put it, the, the prevalence of obesity and diabetes in particular. Um, what, what do you think the government role is in, in the context of, of public health? You know, where is the line drawn and what they can and cannot do? Well, I don't think anyone would question but that nutrition is an important issue and that people should have information about nutrition and they should make smart choices about that. That's never been the issue. Uh, and by the way, it's never been a solution to that to say we're going to force you to look at certain ads in a certain way. So having these kinds of disclosures on an advertisement is, is not the answer. Just as the effort from a few years ago where the FDA uh, wanted to require cigarette packages to have scare packaging where they have uh, gory pictures of diseased lungs and things on cigarette packages. Um, I, I think that is a simplistic and flawed way to go about uh, trying to get people to change behavior. The question is whether, not whether people should have information and be educated about nutrition. The question is whether or not you're going to use a doctrine of compelled speech as the vehicle for trying to achieve that end. Okay, then we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Bob Corn Revere from Davis Wright Tremaine. Thanks so much for being on the podcast to chat about this case with us. I appreciate it. Happy to do it. And with that, our show on February 16th, 2018 is complete. Thanks very much for tuning in. Much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed this show. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.